You are listening to The Human Care Podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Network. I'm your host, Eva Minkoff. On this show, I have candid conversations with chronic illness warriors and health practitioners who are redefining what it means to be human when faced with health challenges. In today's episode, I chat with Nancy Jane Smith. Nancy is a counselor specializing in high-functioning anxiety, author of The Happier Approach, and a mental health advocate. She is simultaneously the primary caretaker of her husband with chronic epilepsy, and now the primary caretaker of herself after being diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis last year. Our conversation explores how to practice kindness with ourselves and others, how to balance care with ourselves and others, and the three personified thoughts we have that Nancy has identified as ways we either positively or negatively impact how we feel and react in life, especially with chronic illness. I loved this episode because we got really comfortable with vulnerability as we continued to talk. Managing ourselves and our loved ones while being sick is still a struggle for us both, and it was great to be honest about it while also feeling confident in the ability to provide guidance. Nancy was insightful and super easy to be with. I can see why she's known to be such a wonderful counselor and coach. I'm really glad that you're coming on today because uh, I think you have something really important to talk about that uh, we really haven't focused on for this podcast yet. What it's like to have a loved one with a chronic illness while being diagnosed with a chronic illness yourself and what are the both physical and emotional limit limitations or difficulties around that. So would you like to start with your story? Uh, whatever way you would like to tell it from wherever you would like to tell it. Oh, um, sure. So I am 47 years old. We'll just go with the basic demographics here. <laughs> and, and I was diagnosed early last year with spondylitis, which is a form of inflammatory arthritis that infects, it starts in your, it mostly affects people's backs. I also happen to have it in my smaller joints, in my wrists and hands, ankles and shoulders. And, and it kind of just came out of nowhere. I, I think I've always had, it was, I have always, ironically in my profession, I work with um, high functioning anxiety, which is a form of anxiety that you kind of push yourself through everything. So when you feel anxiety, you push yourself harder. So I think I've probably had this chronic pain, um, spondyarthritis for many, many, many years, but I just took it as a suck it up buttercup, keep moving along and never thought that I needed that it was a problem. Even to the point where my, we were, I kept having these, I was having stomach pain. How I got diagnosed is fascinating to me because I was having stomach pain and, and I kept saying, I'm having stomach pain. I went and got all these doctors, got all these tests run. Nothing kept coming up. Nothing kept coming up. And my primary care, God love him. He stuck with me and kept getting, he was like, let's just keep getting blood work. We're going to do blood work every few weeks. And my inflammation markers just kept coming back high. And he was like, do you have any pain? Do you have any pain? And I'm like, no, I have the stomach pain. I have the stomach pain. And he was like, no, like, do you have joint pain or back pain or anything? And I would be like, well, yeah. 
but it's the stomach pain that's the problem. That stuff is just because I'm out of shape and I'm getting older and that's why I have the pain. Like I never thought to complain about it because I was just telling myself I'm fat and out of shape. I'm fat and out of shape. And that's why I have this pain. And so it wasn't until he was like, we got to get you into a rheumatologist and get this checked out because you shouldn't have these inflammatory markers. So I ended up going to the rheumatologist and she was like, yeah, you have this oncolensing spondylitis. She was, they found in, in my back and my brother has the same thing. So it was a genetic connection. And all of a sudden it was like my stomach pain kind of went away and I realized it was, that was okay for me to focus on because I think my body was telling me something's wrong. And so we're going to focus you on the stomach pain because you'll complain about stomach pain, but you won't complain about the other things because you'll say it's because you're fat and out of shape. So I ended up with this diagnosis of oncolensing spondylitis. Meanwhile, my husband has had epilepsy since he was eight years old. And so, and which involves multiple mini seizures a day and grand malls every few months. He usually has two or three at a time. And so it has left him unable to work, unable to drive. He, he stays at home and takes care, takes care of the house, you know, so to speak. And, and so it really has turned our lives kind of on, on its head because now I've been suffering with my own chronic pain and have a new appreciation for that idea of chronic illness. My dad had chronic illness and my mom did not have patience for him. And so I learned early on not to have patience for chronic illness and that you should just be able to suck it up. You should just be able to power through what's your problem. Like I have a lot of inner critic around this topic. And so ironic, I think it's just, it's, I, I just, how the universe works out is just so ironic that here I have so many issues around chronic pain and so many of my own misconceptions. And then here I am, I'm living with it and I'm, and I'm loving a man who has it as well. So I think that's just the universe. This is my ultimate lesson, I think. Somehow we're all provided those lessons in one way. Yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, it's so true. When you say that the lack of the lack of patience for basically being a patient, it was it was just that it was it denying the reality of someone's pain or just that it didn't matter? Denying the reality that they should be able to get over it and that they're making a mountain out of a molehill and that they're being overly dramatic. And if, if, if they would just get it together, this wouldn't be a problem. And, and that is, you know, unfortunately I was telling you before we started recording, like I'm still in the midst of this, like, like I still am in, like, I'm not under control. They haven't, we haven't found any meds that work. And, and I'm actively working and reprogramming those thoughts to myself because that's the crap I'm telling myself about that I should be able to just suck this up and keep going. And if I'm tired, it shouldn't matter because I should be able to keep going because I used to be able to keep going. What's the problem? And so it's, it's such a bizarre world of denying your own body. You know, like here, my body is screaming, I'm in pain. We need to stop. And I'm like, no, 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 keep going, keep going. This isn't real. And it's really messes with you. What about when you got a diagnosis? What was that moment like for you? It wasn't anything. (laughs) 
if anything, it was like I have this really bizarro disease and my brother had it and he had it so much worse because he was at the point where he couldn't walk. And so I just kept comparing myself to him and compared to him, mine is nothing. And so I then I really belittled mine more and more and more that I shouldn't be complaining about mine because it's not that bad. So, and the, and everyone, I think it's gone on so long because when I got the diagnosis, everyone was like, oh, it's going to, everyone meaning in my family and my doctor, who I love, fortunately, was like, this will be quick. We'll figure out the right biologic. We'll figure out the right cocktail and you'll be in remission and it'll be great. And that that hasn't happened yet. And it just keeps dragging on and on and on. And, you know, I said to my husband recently, at some point I need to come to an acceptance that we may not find this may not go into remission and I got to keep, you know, holding my breath for that next drug that's going to do it. Instead, I need to be actively working on dealing with what's happening right now and not just constantly looking to the future of then it'll be diagnosed and I'll be okay. Or then I'll get a medicine and I'll be okay. Yeah. Like how, how have you, how do you feel that you've been coping with it well now and, and in ways that you haven't, if you don't mind me asking because I know you're very much in the process as as a lot of us are listening so any any way in which you can show what has been working for you or or be honest about what's still a struggle I would say what what I am definitely getting better at listening to myself and like knowing that for some reason I'm the opposite of a lot of people that have inflammatory arthritis in that my mornings are good. Like my brain is working in the morning. I can accomplish stuff in the morning. And so, and it used to be the opposite for me. Like I would take my mornings off and I would do the bulk of my work in the afternoon. And so now to recognize, I can't just push everything to the afternoon. Like by four o'clock I'm done and, and that's okay. And just giving myself that, that break is, and, and switching my schedule around and being honest about where I am is helpful. And one of the things I, I don't do well is by eight o'clock every night, I'm usually <laughs> either asleep on the couch or wanting to be asleep on the couch. Like I'm just so freaking tired. And every night I think my husband is so tired of me. I just need to accept that that's my reality right now. I'm going to be in bed by eight o'clock every night it's too much not to be, it's too exhausting, but I will continually push myself to be like, no, no, I can make it till nine. I can make it to nine 30. Like there's some badge of honor. If I don't go to bed till nine 30, like who cares what time you go to bed? But I have some, that's something I'm, I don't do well is put up these imaginary, this disease isn't getting me down. If I can do blah, and I'll throw some imaginary thing up there. I know. I know what you're talking about. It's like, we, we set these, I don't know, requirements for us to, to reach a certain standard of valuable, like yes, I'm so valuable if I'm able to do X, Y, and Z, which no one, no one created those standards but myself. And of course, they're always going to be like a little out of reach. Yes. Unrealistic. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. It's just, it is, it's interesting. But the other, and then the other thing that I do do well is is I've pushed myself every day to take the dog for a walk. And and really our dog has been a, a lifesaver for me with that because that movement in the morning really helps just, it helps with my anxiety, it helps get me going. 
and and I wouldn't do that if he wasn't there like come on I gotta have a walk you know <laughs> he was yeah he was like come on come on so that has been so helpful to you know get up and get out and you know just be outside I think has made a big difference in in dealing with it and and not and being my goal on those walks which doesn't always work is to be able to recognize that some days we're going to go we're going to have our 30 minute walk and some days I'm going to be lucky if I can get a 20 minute one in there you know and some days it's going to be 10 like so being having that kindness to myself is still something I'm actively working on yeah as as you alluded to before, the, this concept of practicing kindness, uh, both to yourself, and, and I know that's something that you preach to those you counsel right, as mm-hmm. well, right? Yes, yeah. So actually, moving towards that, can you tell us a little bit about your, your practice as a coach for people with high-functioning anxiety? Is, is that correct? That is correct. <clears throat> it is. So I started the work with high-functioning anxiety because I really... I wrote a book called The Happier Approach, which is about um, our inner critic. And I call our inner critic the monger because the monger spreads messages of propaganda. And that's what that inner critic voice is doing. And so I got interested in the monger, the idea of the monger, when um, dealing with my dad, who ironically had was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, had chronic pain his entire life, his entire adult life and also had Parkinson's with dementia. And when he died, he still believed he was a failure. Like his whole life, he just pushed himself so hard and that monger won the whole time. And so watch, spending time with him when he was dying and I was like, I'm not, I'm doing this too. I am constantly beating myself up and I need to find a way around this. And so I wrote The Happier Approach talking about the monger and the other character of sabotage I call the BFF, who is the idea of go ahead, have that third drink. It'll be fine. You know, and then the next morning you wake up and you're hungover and your monger is like, what were you thinking? Or, you know, like, I know if I have too much sugar, it makes my, you know, my joints get flared up. So I will, but my BFF is all about encouraging me to have sugar because it's been a bad day and you deserve it. And then I pay the price the next day. And so then bringing in the third voice I have is the biggest fan, who is the voice of kindness and wisdom. And I realized in doing and talking to people about this book that we all have a monger, we all have that inner critic, but there are some of us that have, and I'm one of these people that has a monger who is just like, controls every move of every day, who is just like constantly in your ear telling you how much you suck and what a loser and how you missed the mark and pushing, pushing, pushing. And so I got really curious on who those people were. And a lot of those people that have that really strong monger have high functioning anxiety. And so it's not saying that a lot of people will push back to me who have, they'll be like, oh, so then you're saying there's a low functioning anxiety. And I'm not saying that that we as a culture say high functioning means that it's better and I'm putting quotes around better, but all it is is a way of coping with your anxiety. So you have these feelings in you of a constant go, 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 a constant insecurity, self-doubt, unworthiness. I got, I'm feeling out of control and you can either choose to hide and you know, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to face that. I'm just going to hide out because it's too overwhelming 
or the people that I work with have a, I got to push myself harder. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to go, go, go. And so they tend to overperform as a way of dealing with those emotions that are coming up of anxiety, surrounding anxiety. And so those are the type of clients that I work with um, largely because I really understand them. <laughs> as I deal with it myself. So yeah, that's, that's largely the work I do. And how I have figured out how to do that work is by, instead of having clients come into my office and talking to me in you know the traditional way of sitting for an hour and chatting, I have clients actually work with me through an app called Voxer where they can interact with me throughout the day. So whenever they're feeling attacked by their monger or overwhelmed, they can reach out to me on a walkie-talkie app and and tell me what's going on and then I can get back to them right away and help them kind of unhook it. And so it's really helpful for working with clients who have this tendency to push through everything and they don't want anyone to see them sweat. They don't want anyone to see that they're upset even though inside they're like freaking out externally. They look really calm and put together. Um so they would I was finding they would come into my office and they'd be like I'm fine. Everything's fine. I don't have any problems. That's great. And we weren't making any headway. And so with this, this Coach in Your Pocket app, I can, we can start making headway because they're able to talk to me in the moment. I love that. Uh, I could have used that many a time. <laughs> yeah, I have a, well, I'm actually in the midst of getting a new therapist. Um, using Wallacopia, boom. <laughs> nice. But, uh, it's always fun when I can do that. But I do have a life coach, and I see them as very different. They they complement one another for me. And there are times she's so busy where I really need a bit of an emergency session, mm-hmm. and she has she does her absolute best to accommodate. But she's really busy. Yeah, we text. We absolutely do. But I do wish there was actually a little bit of a better system there. So I'm definitely Mm -hmm. checking that out too. I'm glad that you found an app, a a platform in which helps you with your practice, but also them feel the, uh, I guess the relief they need. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's, that that is really great. And uh, I'm just going back on what you said with the three different types, what they, the monger, the BFF and the fan, is that what they were? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, well, well, first of all, I've never been diagnosed with clinical anxiety, I guess it would be the term, right? Mm-hmm. Generalized anxiety yeah. disorder is the Generalized, technical. Right, right. Generalized. <laughs> I've never been diagnosed with that, nor do I think I fit the, the definitions that I've read, but I definitely have a, how do I put this? There's an intensity to my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Eva does not coast. Eva (laughs) is rather intense. So when I'm thinking about these these roles, Mm -hmm. I so closely identify with them as like these little voices in my head. That sounds bad when I say it that way. But, you know, we like having that inner critic where it's sometimes a critic is really, really quiet. Mm -hmm. Right? They're like just whispering just enough for you to hear it. We can't, you don't really hear, hear it. It happens to me way more often than I thought growing up because I've always been a very confident person. Mm-hmm. Turns out I'm bashing myself all the time. And mm-hmm. it took a while to figure out. And then the BFF, to me, tell me if this is what you meant by it, but it's almost like the angel and the devil 
Mm -hmm. whatever is going to let you or you're uh, allowing you to give into your emotional desires or your, I could say your childish desires. Yes. Mm -hmm. Your, when I think of childish, it means there's really no, not necessarily logic behind it. It's just whatever you feel and there's no filter and, and right. Yeah. And then fan, is that someone who, someone or a voice that is more like on the logical lines of things and like your real, like your actual best interests? Yes. Cause I, yeah, the biggest fan is, is like, is going to say, Hey, we have a deadline. We got to get to work, you know, and I know you want to procrastinate, but we got to, let's just do 10 minutes of work. Or we said, we're going to get up and, and stretch today. So let's get up and do one minute of stretching and see how we feel. Like just that kind of hold your feet to the fire, but kindness, not come on, you lazy idiot. You said you were going to get up and do something. What's your problem voice, but kindness voice. Wonderful. I love that that you've created an identity around these different voices, different ways of thinking and being, because at least in my opinion, every time I personify something, mm-hmm. I feel more in tune with whatever that thing or feeling is. Like, yes. Yeah. It's just my monger pissing me off or like, <laughs> right. Or, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Where's my fan at? Where? Right. right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'll literally say like, let's call in your biggest fan. Like what, you know, what would she be saying here? to to get that. Yeah. So what about yourself when it comes to being a caretaker for your husband? Maybe what's, what's been the difference from before you were diagnosed uh, to after? One of the big differences I think is I have more understanding for him. I had a ton of understanding for him, but since, since my diagnosis, it's really getting the fatigue that he experiences, the medication side effects that he experiences, the stuff outside of his control that he experiences and being able to, to really empathize with him on a different level. And then it's also, I think, bringing it back to that biggest fan idea. It's also being able to to kind of know when he's to be kind to him, but also push him a little bit to be like, you know, like we can do this or I think you could, you know, clean the house today, even though you don't maybe not feeling like it or let's get up and do something. And I think that has has helped as well. Like I can do that in a different way. Like, oh, my God, he's he's totally lazy. I can now couch that in, okay, he's just been stuck in a rut. He hasn't been, you know, let's, let's figure out a way to get around this. So I think that those are big ways that it has helped and how it's gotten exhausting, you know, is because we're both, I used to be able, if he was operating at 20%, I could operate at 120% and, and make up that difference. And now it's just accepting that that's not going to happen. You know, like I'm lucky some days we're both lucky that we get off the couch and get food in us, you know, (laughs) and, and that may be us ordering in to do that and, and that that's okay. So reducing the standards. And I think, I think for me, it would be so much harder if he were a hundred percent. Well, this might sound terrible, but I'm going to say it. If he were a hundred percent well, that that would really, I wouldn't be as able to be as accepting as where I am because I would constantly be comparing myself to him and constantly be telling myself that I'm not enough and I should be like him and what's my problem. And he allows me to accept where I'm at and to be like, 
this is hard and you're struggling and that's okay. You know, even last night we had a conversation. I said, conversation about, I said, do you think I complain about my pain too much? And he said, yeah, there are times I get tired of hearing about your pain. And I was like, oh, like I immediately got, you know, pissy. And then I was like, yeah. And then I walked, luckily for him, I walked out to go let the dog out. So he didn't see my face being like, what the hell? You know, you get sick. I'm in pain all the time. Why are you, you know? And, and then I thought, yeah, he's going to get sick of hearing about it. I get sick of hearing about how, you know, he's upset that his brain isn't functioning right. Like that's just being with someone that doesn't mean you don't have empathy for them or compassion for them. It's just like, yeah, sometimes I wish this wasn't the reality we were in. And I think the fact that we can have those. And so I came back in the room and I said, I think that, you know, that totally makes sense. And he, I said, at first I was a little pissy, but I came back around and he's like, yeah, because basically you're asking me, am I a human being who's occasionally going to get annoyed with this? And yeah, I am. And I think being able to have those types of conversations has really strengthened our marriage that we don't have time for the bullshit. It's like, we gotta, you gotta figure out how to get through this on a daily basis. That, <laughs> my, my, my husband and I go through, of course, the same thing. I think everyone does when they're having a relationship with someone with a chronic illness. But so my husband does not have a chronic illness necessarily. He does have a difficult life being um, a fellow as a doctor. But he's really good at not complaining, which also, like you were saying, yeah. being 100%, I'm like, damn it, I wish I didn't complain. <laughs> and what I kind of found funny in this conversation is that what I complain about most is cold. That's actually what I, even if I'm in lots of pain, for some reason, I'll be okay with that. Like last night, I was already in bed and I wasn't feeling well. My joints were real acting up. And I just asked, would you, would you, as you're coming to bed, like, go get my CBD because mm -hmm. it, it takes a lot of the edge off for me. And, and he said, oh yeah, of course. Are you feeling painy? You know, and I was like, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> like, but, uh, but it's, I didn't really need to talk about, I feel like I talk about my pain more so when it actually impacts him. Like we need to sit somewhere or like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. But I complain all the time about the less significant thing, but I'm just thinking about a lot, which is the cold. Now, the cold definitely affects my pain. No. Right. Absolutely. But I will, and I don't even hear it. I'll be that person walking outside to the car because I'm in Rochester and it's like 10 degrees. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just say it's cold. Like just the words, it's cold, like five times and not even notice it. It's so <laughs> irritating. <laughs> I got it. You're cold. <laughs> like I totally get why you would find that annoying I don't even notice it it's just like right my, yeah like, yeah <laughs> what is that doing it does nothing in fact I should be saying hey Eva be on a beach in Barbados and right like, actually I will feel a little bit better you you because you just yes like yeah because that's what I because I said to him I think you know and we came to this conclusion that I will complain in a, in an effort to get myself to be kind to myself, like to be like, this is real. I am, I hurt this much because I think to a lot of people, no one knows how much I'm hurting, you know, like I'm, I'm putting on such a good act and with him, I can be real and 
and kind of say, oh, today was a bad day. Like I'm really struggling. And it's a way to get, it's a way to hear it out loud. So my, so my biggest fan will step in and be like, yeah, because all day long, I've just been hammering myself with my monger. Like, I don't care that you're in pain. You got to keep moving. It doesn't matter that you're in pain. You got to keep going. Instead of saying, it sucks you're in pain. And what do we, what's, what do we need to finish? You know, what, what can we end the day with that will be a positive versus just hammering myself and hammering myself. Right. And I feel like a lot of people, including myself, fall in an in-between like crack there of the go, go, go. You shouldn't be feeling negative, bad and the take care of yourself, be positive in the, in the middle of that crack is okay. I recognize that I'm in pain and this sucks. And then just feeling defeatist. Mm -hmm. Defeatist whatever about it. Um, I know that I feel that often. (laughs) 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 Well, yeah. And it's some, I don't know about you, but for some reason I am more triggered by the smaller episodes of pain. Yes. I would agree with that. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think the bigger ones I can at least, it can, I can let my whole self go into it. You know, like, oh, this is terrible. I, you know, like I can, I think I can buckle. It's kind of like when you experience, like I remember when my dad died and it was just like, you know, the week of, that he died, I was, in, I was on top of it. You know, like we were doing things and I was checking things off the list. And that's how I get when I'm in a major flare. Like, I'm like, okay, all hands on deck. What do we got to do to get through this? And when I'm in a little flare or a little pain, even today, like I would say, that's what's happening. Like I'm in a little, my, my wrists are just like killing me today, but it's not all over. It's just in my wrists. And I've been more whiny in my brain today than, than normal because it's just a minutely annoying versus the all over pain, which requires me to stop and change how things are going. I still have to keep going with the little wrist pain, but it, it's a, it's a, it's there all the time. Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's almost like a, a distraction and therefore you notice it more rather than, yes. than catering to it. So like, if, yeah, yeah. If I was in, a, in a whole flare, I'd be in bed doing, maybe, maybe if I was doing anything, the bare minimum and be like, it's okay, Eva. Today's a yes. bad day. <laughs> yes, yeah. Right, yeah, that makes sense. I, if you don't mind, I wanted to go back to something you said really quickly before about you and your husband. Like if you're function or one of you's functioning at 20%, the, the other is going to try and go 120% mm-hmm. or whatever. I just recently, I think it was on a podcast, heard Brene Brown speak. Do you know who Brene Brown is? Oh yeah. I'm certified in her stuff. So, oh, so yeah. Man, big fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love all her books and her talks and great researcher. People haven't seen Brene Brown stuff, Google her. I can put links in the show notes. Anyway, she is uh, like the queen of vulnerability, which I guess out of context sounds weird. Um, but <laughs> she, she studied shame and vulnerability for like the last couple decades. Um, and uh, actually my book of hers, Dare to Lead, is over there. The, the reason I bring it up is on this podcast, she said something about her husband and her having this pact of mentioning when they come in the door at what level they're operating or I think it was in regards to stress I believe okay so for instance so one of them mentions it first and then the other person knows they can pick up the slack so let's say Brene comes in and goes I'm at a 40 
like, do you think you can meet me at a 60 today? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't know what percent of the time, but the majority of the time they can do that for each other. But then there are some days where they're both at a 20. Mm-hmm. And then they're just like, okay, we've established, we know where each other is. And we're just going to take care of ourselves in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. And I found that interesting. Yeah. Because with two people, I guess actually whether both have a chronic illness or one yeah. less than one has a chronic illness, like Brene does, they were talking about, I believe stress in that. Situation. Right. Yeah. And I think what's I love about that, I had not heard that. What I love about that is the idea, like the belief of me saying, and I have to be at 120 is, is a fallacy. Like that's like total monger pushing me to do something impossible versus me being just cause he's up. Op- so he's operating at 20%. Then I can come in at whatever percent I'm at. And we just got to figure out how, you know, how to get it done versus I need to overperform to make up for him. That isn't the case. Right. Yeah. And that's the difference there is maybe you can see sometimes if you can push yourself a little bit more. I don't Yes. I feel like there are times it depends on what's going on. So I've been in pain when my husband's in pain or whatever, something's not going well. And I'm depending on where I am. I'm like, okay, you know what? I can, I can push myself a little bit more and take care of him within, within reason. But yeah, if you're both at a low percent, I think she said something about at least verbalizing it, what they're, what yes. they need or, or how they're going to handle it so they're on the same page. But yeah, I listened to this only a few days ago. I just loved that, that insight into their marriage where they, they actually stayed it. They stayed it when mm-hmm. they walked in the door. That's like, awesome. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's cool. I don't know how other people feel about it, but I might try that with my husband. <laughs> yeah. I think, because I think the more you can have intentionality and communication around what's really going on is, is important, you know, is a key. Like, I, I know that's a key to our relationship that, that, that he can, when, when I come home and I'll say, how many seizures have you had today? And he'll say, you know, oh, I've only had two or I've had eight. I know, I mean, that's our, I know an eight day is just brutal for him. Yeah. So I'm gonna, he's just not going to be there in the same way. Are they every day? Yeah. I guess how these, these ones work. Yeah. They're daily. Wow. What in the moment, what is that like for for him? When he, so his, he just has a, his, like his, his face will fall. He gets this really awful look on his face. They only last for like uh, 10 to 45 seconds, but he gets this awful look on his face. And sometimes he'll have a uh, tick like a physical tick, like his hands will pick, he'll pick on his, pick, pick his shirt or something and, and he can't communicate. So we have a signal uh, that he puts his hands together, like hits his thumb when he's going to have a, when he's having a seizure, because a lot of times, like I'll be talking to him in the kitchen and he'll be in the family room and I can't see him. And I'll be like, what's going on? Like, why aren't you responding? <laughs> I don't do that. Something. <laughs> I don't do that as much now as I used to, but um, I'll be like, oh crap, he's having a seizure. And then I'll go into the, you know, to the family room and he'll give me the signal to be like, because it's awful when you're talking to him and then he is, you, he, we were out to dinner last week with friends and he had one at the dinner table and they were like, what's wrong? Because his face just fell. It, he looks like, his face looks like he's, that he's looking at you like, what the fuck? Like, that's what it. <laughs> 
And so if you're talking to him and you see that and all of a sudden you're just like, why are you so angry all of a sudden, you know? So I have to be like, oh, he's having a seizure. And, and then he usually can come out of them pretty, pretty quickly. But someone had said, and, and another friend of ours who has, who has seizures, she had said that every seizure she has, whether it's a grand mal, which is the traditional kind that everyone's seen on TV or these mini seizures, it's, she feels like she ran a marathon. Like they're so, yeah. They just suck so much out of you. So that has been, knowing that has always been helpful for me to recognize they look like they're nothing because they're 30 seconds and done, but what it's doing to his brain is much more intense. Wow. So, so his, I assume that's impacted a lot of his social life or abilities to do things with work. Yeah. So he used to, when we got married, he was working and he has a strong passion for swimming lessons. He loves teaching people how to swim. And so he managed a local swim club. But we decided it'd be better for him not to work because the seizures were really active. And we thought the stress was triggering was triggering that. And I had, you know, at the time we got married, I was like, we're going to fix this. You know, we're going to get a, the best doctor. And I was all like all kinds of hopeful on how we were going to fix him. Not that I needed him to be fixed, but just... He needed, he had not done a lot of great. I think we've lost Nancy for a sec. And he, and so we got a bunch of, we got got him into a neurologist and who specialized in epilepsy. And then this, this past year we did, he had a SEEG procedure where they put electrodes into your brain and he had that done and was in the hospital for 13 days while they were trying to figure out where his seizures were come from. They figured out where they were coming from. We went in to get that area of his brain ablated, hoping that would at least end his seizures on meds because he's on meds and he still is having seizures. And, and he was seizure-free for seven whole days and then they came back and, and he's still having them. So that was all of 2019 was kind of a bust when it comes to his care. So this, so right now we're kind of just reeling from what are the deficits he's having because part of his brain was ablated? What are the deficits he's having? Cause he's on these really intense meds. You know, what are the deficits he's having because he's having these mini seizures every day. And you know, the area of the brain that they ablated is an area that controls apathy and so he said it so well, we were at the uh, surgeon's office and he said, you know, when you throw a piece of trash in the trash can and you miss, and he's like, when I do that, I'm just kind of like, eh, look at that. I missed. And he's like, that's how I feel about everything in my life right now. And so that has been really hard for me, especially because he just had a lot of passions and interests. And, and now he's just kind of like, eh, on everything that that is happening. So they said that that may change and who knows where that's going to go. But those kind of things, his, his condition, it definitely is changing at any time because you never know what the next seizure is going to do to him. Oh, I see. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, I feel like there's a mini elephant, mini elephant in the room, not a big okay. elephant, mini elephant. <laughs> <laughs> Cute. So given your background with your, with your mother and your father, you mentioned that there wasn't patience for chronic illness, Mm -hmm. which just seems like maybe weakness in general with. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You married your husband knowing that he has this condition. Mm -hmm. 
And yet you said that you still didn't accept one being chronically ill until you started and you're still even having that struggle with yourself. Mm -hmm. So I don't know exactly how to ask this, but like, what was going through your mind when you, when you fell in love with someone who, who, who is sick? It, I, cause I think the issue for me is pain is the invisibility, invisibility of pain. Cause his, you can see, he has the seizures. I can be like, this is, see, he's having them. This is what's wrong with him. And honestly, it never, I, you know, I just fell in love with him. Well, and he happened to have epilepsy. Like it just, it didn't even factor into, and I think even if you would have said, oh, Nancy, you're going to be dealing like this epilepsy is going to be, there's an awesome, awesome, I can't think of the name of it. Moth. Is it the moth? The storytelling podcast. It's called, I think it's called the moth and it's called me, her and epilepsy is the name of the, is the name of this moth podcast. It's a storytelling and they stand up on a stage and they tell these stories. But anyway, this guy talks about how epilepsy is the third thing in their marriage and his wife has epilepsy and how he will always be dealing with it. And when I listened to that podcast before we got married, I just cried because it was so, that's exactly what it is. And I always had an acceptance of it. I remember my dad taking me aside and being like, really, you know, this guy, this is going to be hard. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't care. I mean, this is him. So, and I didn't get married till I was almost 40. So I waited a long time <laughs> to, to find him, but with mine, it's pain. And so it's invisible and no one can see it. And so, and I know my dad had invisible, he had invisible pain and that's what my mom was constantly shaming him for. And because I can remember that right before he died, she wanted him to go to Florida. And she said to him, you're in pain here. You're in pain in Florida. Who cares? Like, just let's just go to Florida. And now I can say to her, you know, I said to her somewhat recently, yeah, but getting to Florida is hell when you're in pain. Getting on the plane, sitting on the plane, <coughs> excuse me, you think it's just two hours, but it is two hours of hell being on a plane cramped where you can't move. And, and I said, I could totally get why he didn't want to go. And being in your home is so much more comfortable than being in some hotel. You can't sleep. I said, it's just, there's a lot more to it than you're in pain here, you're in pain there. And, mm -hmm. and that's the piece that people don't see, or especially my mom doesn't see, is just like, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. Yeah. And sometimes that just isn't worth it. Yeah. It's, it's a different context of pain. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, sure. Always going to be in pain and there's better pain. There's worse pain, but the experience around it, like even if it's the same pain, right? Like the same level, you're at like a five, whatever. And, but where you are just somehow it makes a huge impact on it. Even if it's, I shouldn't say even if it's just emotional, but you know, just. Or, right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I had a flare. I don't get like knockout flares as I call them uh, very often, meaning that I am just not a human. Like I'm in bed, can't do anything. Everything hurts. They don't happen luckily that often. It's only a few times a year. One of them happened on the way back from an international trip. Oh uh, my gosh. In November. 
Yeah. And I just, I was like, really, this is happening right now. Really? And I had just had the most wonderful trip. I was so happy I could make it through that trip physically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was wonderful. And I'm a, I'm a travel junkie. So that's a whole other can of worms for me that, you know, has been difficult to paint, but yeah, I do remember thinking specifically what you're talking about, which is, uh, this would suck anywhere. But being on a plane right now just exacerbates everything that I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And also being so close to people, also being with my husband. I felt like I couldn't have my space. I, I wanted him to be there, but I also need my physical space when yes. I'm becoming human. I don't mm-hmm. want them to touch me. I have yes. the, the belt, <laughs> the, like, the sounds, it smells weird. There's pressure. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> When we were landing, I was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, they got the landing, but no. Right, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a lot. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people understand what I'm talking about. So, so yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. First of all, we're all imperfect humans, right? Whether it be chronic illness or something else. And mm-hmm. I feel like everyone just has to be honest with themselves about where their boundaries are. Mm -hmm. And for you, your boundary was not like a physiological uh, chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful that you were like, this is, this is something I can see. I love this person. And that's not, that's not going to hinder my feelings for him. Mm -hmm. And that is wonderful. I, yeah, it's, it's funny. I never actually fully had that experience. I had, uh, dated people with mental health issues, never any real big physical ones though. And I do wonder how I would have acted. Cause I know, I don't think I ever became clear with myself when, when, when I was dating, mm-hmm. what that line would have been, I guess I would have, uh, taken it as it came. It doesn't really matter now, I guess. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm married. I'm happy. Like leave it at that. But although, sorry, I shouldn't say that because you know, God forbid something could happen to my husband. Right. Totally. Yeah. That's also yeah. just with anyway. Yeah. But it is, you know, the thing I, you know, cause I have friends who will say to me, oh my gosh, how do you deal with the fact like that he doesn't work and that, you know, he takes naps, long naps in the middle of the day and don't you get frustrated. And I'm like, you know what? He is the most kind and I can come down in the middle of the day and be like Bleh, all over him. And he stops what he's doing and he listens to me. Like he is the perfect person for me and I don't need someone that, that brings in a ton of money. I don't need someone that, you know, that's, that's driven and is cleaning up the backyard and doing all these amazing things. I need someone that's going to show up for me. Who's going to be amazing to my family to, you know, like last night we went out to dinner with all my nieces and nephews and there he is like joining in with all of them, having fun. Like that's, that's, I see those gifts in him and that, that, supersedes any of the other crap that I don't care about. So for someone else that maybe they couldn't deal with it, but the stuff he brings to the relationship is exactly what I need versus the other stuff. That's actually just really good relationship advice in general. Yes. It's it's not about what others think you should or should not have. There Mm -hmm. might be things you want to consider if you haven't thought them through enough. Absolutely. But who is it that you need? Who's and and who are you going to be for them? It's mm-hmm. a it's a partnership, right? And actually, speaking of partnership, I like looking at relationships 
all under the same light, even though there are different goals with each relationship. For instance, we're talking about marriage or romantic relationships, mm-hmm. but what about with a friend or, or a colleague or as a, as a daughter, right? Like, where do you see, like, if you had to, based on your experience as a counselor or just as a woman, what have, what differences have you seen in, in relationships other than romantic ones in this kind of a scenario? So like taking care of a loved one who is not your spouse, but someone else to you. I don't get you. I'm not following <laughs> the question. Sorry, I'm a little bit out. Uh, so we, we've been talking about what it's like to be someone with a chronic illness, also taking care of someone we love with a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about it in the context of romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. So what differences do you see in this between other relationships? So taking care of your father, for instance, Mm -hmm. a chronic illness or or a friend uh, Mm -hmm. when you yourself are also dealing with things. I think it falls in the same boat. I mean, and it, it, obviously it's different because romantic love is different, but I still think it is, it's a choice and it's a showing up and it's a recognizing what this person brings to the table beyond their illness. And I think that's, what's so important not to look, not to look, not to ignore the illness, but to be able to look beyond it and see the whole person. And, and we don't do that enough period. You know, like just because I just, I know like with my dad who had chronic pain, he was able, I, I, so many times I have conversations with him when I'm walking in the dog in my head and almost every one of them starts of, gosh, I wish I could go back and be like, how did you do this dude? Like, how did you live your entire life in chronic pain and accomplish as much as you did? And, and I think that one of the reasons when he died, I had no regrets with him, which was just such a blessing is because I was able to have those empathetic times with him when he could say, this is so hard. And I could say, yeah, this is so hard. You know, I, you are with the Parkinson's, his pain was even worse and everything was exacerbated. And so I think being able just to show up to another human being and be like, this is hard. Where can I help? What can I do? How can I be there for you? And not just, and, and see them as a human being who's flawed instead of what we think they should be and how much they should be able to do and the stereotypes and the judgments that we have in our own heads. Very well said. And you know, if, if for some reason you're not able to do that, whatever that reason may be, then maybe you should decide what that relationship is. I guess I'm thinking a bit more in terms of friends, Mm -hmm. Um, but I've thought that actually this is something my husband said a while ago that I love. And it wasn't really about illness. It was about just people and their flaws, but (laughs) um, (laughs) I guess we can unfortunately put like a negative thing. Flaws doesn't sound good, but like something not positive maybe about them. He said, when you know something about a person that you don't like or you don't think is right, mm-hmm. sure, maybe depending on what it is, you can see if you can have a positive influence on it mm-hmm. for a very limited amount of time and energy. And if that's not the case, then you have to make a decision. Are you going to be their friend? He said this in the context of friendship. Or mm-hmm. are you not? Or I guess mm-hmm. in the family, since you're always going to be family, decide what relationship you want to have. Mm-hmm. Because people have to be their own they're there. No one's going to change them except themselves. Right. Right. And yeah. So 
comes to chronic illness, I think in this case, it's you like being there. Oh, my mind just went. <laughs> what do you think? Where was I going with this? Remind me, what were you saying about your dad? The empathy. Empathy thing. Oh, gone. Oh, sorry. Yes. So you, it's not just about, it's accepting who they are. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean by it. So when it comes to empathy, but you have to decide whether or not you're okay with that negative thing that you don't like about them or wish was different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, then you decide whether yes. or not you want yeah. them in your life or how you want them in your life, but don't try to change them or don't, yes. or don't blame them for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. And I was like, how are you so emotionally intelligent? <laughs> <laughs> He's so good at compartmentalizing emotions like that. Cause there's this friend we had and he's a little, he's not really a good person. He's not no longer, no, no longer my friend, but okay. he, he was a lot of, he was a lot of fun, a uh, really fun guy. And I'd have fun with him, but then I'd yell him at for these things, other things, because I would say, you know, this isn't right. You're not showing me respect, whatever. And my husband mm -hmm. finally said to me, you have to decide if you want to be friends with this person. I'm friends with him to have fun. And then I take everything else away. Cause I accept, yes. mm -hmm. I don't like these things about him, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he said, you have to figure out whether or not that's enough for you. Yeah. Cause I think that, I think that's the, absolutely the key, the acceptance and also wrecking, you know, and another piece of that, I think of for me, for me, especially cause I'm still struggling with my own chronic pain, to put it in the couch it in chronic pain is that like, sometimes we'll go out and I'll be like, Oh, those, you know, my friends are going to judge me because I'm tired or because I have to leave early or whatever. And then I realize I'm judging myself way more than they're judging me. You know, like, so to recognize what are you putting on, this is a, the case in the scenario you just talked about, but a lot of times we put stuff on our friends that we assume they're talking about us or thinking about something and and they're, and really they are showing up a hundred percent for them, but we're not showing up a hundred percent for ourselves. And so we, we project onto them. Oh, that's so true. And I think that happens a ton, you know, and I know I do that a ton. Yeah. We're really good at yelling at other people when we really want to yell at ourselves. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially with chronic illness, that's something to look out for. I, I really do think most people do that in one way or another, but with chronic illness, I, I feel like we can be a bit more sensitive in that area. Yes. Yeah. So definitely, definitely good to bring up. Is there, we have to wrap up in a minute, but is there, are there any other nuggets of knowledge or something that you really <laughs> like to put out there if we haven't covered it already? Like for some of your clients or your friends or even your husband, do you find that there's, one way of looking at, or a certain way of looking at things that has, has brought to life the, your biggest fan. Let's put it that way. I think, I mean, I, the thing I always say to myself over and over and over again, two things. One is get out of your head because I always am doing better when I can approach the world from a grounded place. So when I can like get into my body, cause my head just will spin on and on and on. And then the second thing is, how can you add in some kindness here? Whether that be that I'm frustrated because my husband didn't do the dishes again, or whether that be that I'm frustrated with myself that I procrastinated and didn't get, you know, starting with work until 10 a.m. and I really wanted to hit it running at 8 a.m. 
is to, you know, asking myself, where can I put some kindness into this piece? Because for me, saying the word kindness, when I say, how can you accept yourself no matter what? That's so triggering for me because I'm like, I have so much more I want to do and I can't accept myself no matter what. I want to continue growing and I have all this whole big story around that. But if I can say to myself, where can I add some kindness? I can do that in the moment. I can come up with a piece of kindness really easily and, and be like, okay, we didn't get work until 10 a.m., but here we are, butts in the chair. What are we going to do? You know, and that idea, I think, has, has been a game changer for me. Thank you. That's great. It's also, it makes it much more manageable. Like a po- it's a way to move in a positive direction, but not mm-hmm. in such an overwhelming way. Like you said, f- totally accepting everything about yourself and your life. It's like, whoa, it's a lot. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great aim and, and one should actually absolutely move. Absolutely. That, but, yeah. but all at once, that's a lot. It's like, okay, well, well, what about right now? What can I do to give myself some kindness? And mm-hmm. yeah, I, that's perfection. Thank you. <laughs> well, Nancy, this has truly been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for coming on today and sharing your, your candid story with us. It's, it definitely impacted me and I, I'm sure many others listening. Thank you so much. It was awesome. As mentioned in the episode, Nancy works with her clients through a game-changing program called Coach in Your Pocket. She developed this new methodology for people with high-functioning anxiety in mind. As opposed to traditional in-person therapy sessions, Coach in Your Pocket gives you support in the moment when you need it most. Using a convenient and user-friendly app called Voxer, you can leave Nancy a voice or text message at any time, 24-7, whenever you're struggling or having a panic attack or you're pushing yourself too hard. Imagine being able to reach a trusted, knowledgeable expert in high-functioning anxiety at any time of day, any day of the week. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Human Care Podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Podcast Network. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these three things. Hit our subscribe button, leave feedback with a review, and share this episode with a loved one. Don't forget to check out our official Invisible Not Broken Network Facebook group, Please join us in our community conversations where you can ask questions, connect with fellow Invisible Illness peers, and make suggestions for the podcast. Visit facebook.com slash groups slash Invisible Not Broken. And this link will, of course, be in the show notes. Also, if you ever want to submit a question or suggestion directly, feel free to send an email to chronicillnesspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for tuning in and being part of our mission to transform healthcare into human care.